Open your Bibles up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one. Well, what are you thankful for? Different times of the year we ask that question, typically in November, hopefully more than that. But think about that question. What are you thankful for? Many times people think of maybe something that benefits them or maybe something that's considered in this world to be really good. Maybe it's something that is going very well in your life. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your your family. Maybe it's your home. Those aren't aren't bad things to thank God for, but what, what comes to your mind? Hopefully, if you're saved by grace, what comes to your mind first and foremost is your salvation through Christ. But what what if you had people in your life who were causing you a lot of problems? Maybe they were fighting. Maybe they were immature. Don't nudge anyone in here, okay? Would you be thankful for them? If we said, what are some things you're thankful for? Would you raise your hand and, and mention them? Well, in our text of 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9, Paul wrote that he was thankful for the Corinthian church. And on the face of it, we might think, well, of course, he's an apostle, he's pastoral, he's supposed to say those kind of things, right? Well, Paul, in this text, says that this was a part of his regular prayer life. On the face of it, we might think that this is something he's supposed to do, but this is something that seemed to be genuine for him. He said he thanked God for them. And if you look at the text here, the question is why? And it's not based on anything that they've done for him or how they treated him. We're going to look at today, we're going to see that Paul was thankful for the church because of the work of Christ, because of the work that Christ had done for the church and to the church. Our text this morning is going to teach us that we should thank God for our church, that we should thank God for Lighthouse Bible Church because of Christ's work for his church. So I guess that's probably a question we should ask. Are you thankful for your church? I hope you are. And then the next question is why? And my, my hope this morning is that the Holy Spirit will convince you to be thankful for these people in here for the right reasons, <laughs> for, for the reasons that's given in our text. And really there's two reasons we're going to see this, this morning. First, we should thank God for the church because of his provision for the church. And then next, because of his promise to the church. This prayer of thanksgiving is six verses long here. And throughout this prayer, what we're going to see is Paul keeps referring back to the moment of their conversion. Of course, Paul was there when many of them were converted. He was the one that preached the gospel and they were saved and baptized And so what we're going to see in verses 4 and 7 is that he records for them that God had provided for them grace, and grace to save them, but also grace to equip them, so they needed nothing. And then in verses 8 through 9, he's going to recall the divine call at their conversion and how that guarantees their final blamelessness. Would you stand with me as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through nine. I'm actually still in the wrong text here. Verse four, the scripture says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless 
in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we believe that your word is like a sword. It pierces to the deepest parts of our heart. It can, it can discern our intents, our thoughts, our motives, our desires. And so, Lord, use your word to open up our heart to your will. And then may, Lord, we bow and submit ourselves to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated? Well, the story goes that there was a senior citizen's Bible study. And the time for prayer came at the end. So, of course, they said, you know, what prayer requests do you have? And so it's a senior citizen's Bible study. So one lady raises her hand. She says, pray for my strength. My arms are getting very weak. And she was holding a cup of coffee. She said, I, I can barely even lift this coffee. Another raised their hand and requested, well, pray for my eyes. My cataracts are so bad, I, I can't even see my coffee. Another spoke up and said, pray for my eyes too. I've been having blurred vision these days. Another exclaimed, pray for me. My blood pressure pills are making me dizzy. Another asked, pray for my mind. Sometimes I don't even know where I am. The room, or the leader then said to everyone, okay, let's have a time of thanksgiving. Let's, what are some praises? What are some things we can thank God for? So the room was kind of silent. and Everyone's kind of looking around and thinking. And one lady piped up and she said, well, we can all be thankful that we can all still drive. <laughs> and so sometimes it's easy to think of things that are problems, right? If we ask about, prayer requests, sometimes we can get those, but it can be sometimes difficult to be thankful. When Paul wrote this letter, there were many problems in this church. In fact, that's what this letter is about. But what's interesting is he starts this letter off by testifying to them that he prays for them, and his prayer is a prayer of thanksgiving. Look at verse 4. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Notice how he says, my God. So this is a, a personal prayer. Some people might look at this and might suggest, well, he's just doing this as a formality. This is how you introduce the letter. Maybe he's a pastor, so he has to say these kind of things. <laughs> That's what his job is, right? But no, he's saying here, like, this is genuinely what I always do. When I think about you, I actually pray for you. And again, think about the problems that these, these believers had. I mean, how often do you think when when Paul thought of that church, that he was actually tempted to, to moan and complain. When he went on his knees to pray, how many times did his inner spirit grow and be like, oh, the Corinthian church. But actually what he does is he says, actually when I get on my knees and I think about you, actually what I do is actually thank God for you. I think before we go into the reasons of why we should thank God for our church, I guess probably we should ask, do you thank God for your church? Do, do we pray for each other? And then do we even look at that list and we say, thank you, Lord, for that person? And that person brought me a meal last week, so I'm really thankful for that. And then there's this person, <laughs> and I'm thankful for them too. Is that how we think about each other and about our church? So what can we thank God for about our church? Let's talk about two reasons to thank God for your church. For our church, the first reason is because of God's provision for the church. And here's his provision. Christ's grace has given everything we need. Look at verse 4. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you. Why? Because of grace, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you were enriched with grace, enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge. So Paul thanked God for the church because God had provided grace for his church. And notice the verb was given there. You see that in that text right there in verse 4? That's an aorist passive. Again, this means it's something that happened in the past at a point in time. And so what he's doing is he's referring, he's referring back to their conversion. 
He's saying, remember back when you were converted, when you, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and then God made you alive. He made you alive together in Christ. And what was it that saved them? Well, Ephesians 2, 5 says, it's for by grace that you're saved. So he's saying, remember that time when grace came and rescued your soul. So grace saved them, but also grace equipped them as well. Now, what is what is grace? When we think about grace, what is grace? Grace is favor. At its simplest definition, it's doing something kind for someone that you desire to show favor. So you can grace people. Uh, a couple days ago, my, uh, one of my, my youngest son asked if I could help him build something. And so as a father, I want to have grace, favor to my son. So I went and I helped him with something. I, I showed kindness to him. I showed favor to him. It's what fathers and mothers are supposed to do for their children. And grace is how God the Father has eternally related to his son. He shows favor to his son. Grace is how God the Father related to his son while he walked and lived on the earth. Think about this verse in Luke 2, 40. When Jesus was but a child, the Bible says, the child grew and became strong and filled with wisdom and the favor or the grace of God was upon him. Also remember at Jesus' baptism, there he was in the, those waters in the Jordan and John the Baptist dipped him under the water. And when he came back up, when Jesus came back up, the Bible says a voice from heaven, that's God the Father, cried out from a cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And then remember, the Holy Spirit came upon him and that demonstrated the favor of the Father was upon him. He declared his favor, and then the favor of the Holy Spirit came upon him. And throughout Jesus' time on earth, the Father continued to pour out love and kindness and favor and grace upon his Son. God's grace, God's favor upon Jesus flowed abundantly. It was like an, an infinite an infinitely amped electrical current that kept flowing and couldn't be stopped. And that grace did not stop during his ministry until one day. The day of atonement. On that day, grace was dramatically, suddenly cut off as Jesus hung on a cross. And instead of pouring grace out upon Jesus, the Father poured wrath upon Jesus. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53 that he, speaking of Christ to come, the Messiah to come, he was smitten by God. That's, that's the opposite of grace. Smitten by God and afflicted. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So instead of giving grace to the son, he gave wrath to him. While Jesus hung naked on that cross, shamed by the world, rejected by his creation, scorned by sinners, the father, the father cut off grace to the son. Why? Why did that happen? Well, the Father poured out eternal wrath, hell upon Jesus, so Jesus could pour out grace to us. Jesus took our punishment on that cross. He accepted wrath so he could give us grace. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins. That's the wrath of God being poured out upon Jesus for our sins. The righteous, that's Jesus. For the unrighteous, that's us. That he might bring us to God, that's grace. Being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, he was resurrected. We, you and I, we deserve wrath, right? We deserve to be dropped into hell for eternity. Jesus deserved grace, 
But Jesus took the wrath so we could have his grace. So, so what is this grace here in verse 4? Well, the grace given to us is God's favor to sinners who don't deserve it. It's his, it's his favor to those who don't deserve it. It's a gift. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this, and I thought about a person who's wealthy. Maybe think of a, a wealthy man who has a son, and he has owns companies, owns stocks. He's a billionaire. He has cars. He's got a mansion in Newport Beach, and this guy's loaded. Think about, think about a guy who's loaded, and he has a son, and his son is not like most rich brats, right? This son is actually one who honors his father. He's a son who shows respect to his father. He admires his father. Now, how do you think a rich, well-to-do father who loves his son and has a son who is honorable to his father, how do you think that father would treat that son? Favor, right? He would show grace to him. But then think about an ex-employee in that father's company. Maybe this employee betrayed him, stole from him, tried to ruin him. Maybe that employee backstabbed him in the worst way. I mean, it was like he was the worst employee ever. This guy, ever. This guy deserves to be in jail. So think about someone like that. What does that ex-employee deserve? His wrath, if you could say it that way. He deserves the justice system. So, so therefore, how do you think a father like that would treat an ex-employee as opposed to his son? And would it ever be conceivable that he would actually share the same favor with that ex-employee that he would, or with with the ex-employee that he had with his son? Like, that doesn't make sense to us, does it? That's not how things work. I mean, can you imagine a wealthy father like that befriending that ex-employee, inviting him into his life, and giving him his son's fortune? That seems ridiculous. But that is the type of grace that God has shown us. We are the ones who have betrayed him. We are the ones who have sinned against him. And instead of showing wrath to to us for our sin, he gives us grace. The Bible says when a sinner turns to faith in Christ, the Father gives that sinner the grace of Christ. What does God's grace do for us? God's grace justifies. God's grace sanctifies. God's grace cleanses. God's grace makes a sinner a saint and a child of God. In fact, notice in verse 4 that the grace of, it's the grace of God that was given to you in what? In Christ Jesus. So it's the grace that Jesus provided for us. So God's grace saves us saves us from hell, it gives us eternal life and fellowship with the Lord, and then that grace never stops. I mean, God's grace comes to us at our conversion, and it's with us for eternity. It's like God has gone to his bank of eternal grace, and he's opened up a bank account for you. And as you look at the name on that account you see that it's a joint account and the other name in that account is Jesus Christ. And that account, that account has an infinite account balance. There's so much grace in there, you could never spend it all. And all that grace is available to you at any time. Look at verses four and five. He says in the middle of verse four that the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus Verse 5, that in every way you were enriched in him. The verb enriched is another aorist passive. So again, speaks of something that happened at your conversion. So he enriched you with his grace when you came to Christ. Ephesians 1, 7. In him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. That's grace. The forgiveness of our trespasses, that's grace, according to the riches of his grace. Where did it come from? God is rich in grace, and so he's given you grace. Ephesians 2, that's the bottom there, Ephesians 2, 7. God has given us grace 
and it's the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you realize that we are the richest people in town? Right? Move over, Elon Musk. Like Jeff Bezos, he's got nothing on us. We're richer than he is. And you might not be rich in material things. You might not have a lot of stuff. Who cares about that anyways? It's all going to burn. We're rich in what matters. We're rich in the grace of Jesus Christ. God has gifted you with Christ's grace. And think, think about that. Now you have the favor of Jesus Christ upon you. God's eternal disposition toward you is to show love, is to show favor, is to show kindness. The same type of kindness that he shows his son, he now shows you. That's amazing to think about. First, or John 1.16 says this, for from his fullness, that's the fullness of Christ, one who's filled with grace and truth, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. And the idea is, that because of Christ, God gives you grace upon grace and more grace and more grace. And it keeps flowing and it keeps coming and keeps coming because that comes from his fullness. He is a God of grace. Have you ever seen Niagara Falls? It's, it's a lot like the Grand Canyon, you know, where you go there and you look at it and you go, what's next? But it's still pretty impressive. I've seen it before. Every second, 700,000 gallons of water flows over Niagara Falls. That's a lot of water. And God's grace is like that water. It just keeps coming. Nothing can stop it. It's over the top. It gushes forth through the power of the Holy Spirit. You only need a cup of grace today? That's okay. He's got a lot of it. You're like, I need a, I need a truckload of grace. There's plenty for you as well. Look at verse four. He says that the grace of God, it was given to you in Christ Jesus, verse five, that in every way, in every way you were enriched in him. And so in what ways has God enriched us? In all speech, in all knowledge. The word speech there is the Greek word logos, which probably should be a familiar term to you if you have been in church for any amount of time. Jesus is called the logos or the word. We preach the word. This is the logos of God, the word of God. So that's that word right there. It's logos. If I look at it in verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1.18, you can see this word here. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word or the logos of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the word of the cross, the logos of the cross, this is speaking of the proclamation of God's word. So this speech is speaking of the logos or the word of God. So this church, they had a treasure. They had the word of God and it was being proclaimed. That was God's grace. God's grace had given this church the word of God to be proclaimed. Then you have knowledge in verse five. This is the Greek word gnosis. This word knowledge speaks of someone who has informed mind, but also an informed conscience. In fact, go to 1 Corinthians chapter eight. I wanna show you this in 1 Corinthians eight. Paul uses this word many times in 1 and 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 8, he used this word to talk about their knowledge of what was right and wrong and how that knowledge should inform their conscience. So look at verse 1 of chapter 8. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. There's that word. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. We're not going to be able to go through this whole text. But in this text, Paul was speaking about meat offered to idols. And the problem 
for Christians at this time was they would go to a marketplace, you know, and they're looking at their fruits and vegetables, and then there's some meat there. And the question it was, was that meat offered to an idol somewhere? You know, maybe they took that meat and they put it in front of an idol and they said a little prayer and did an incantation or something, you know, and said something over it and they brought it to market and they're selling it, you know, it's on sale for $14.95. So what meat's going for? I don't know what it is. I don't shop, so it's probably not even in the marketplace. But anyways, and, and, the, and the question was, is, was that meat offered to idols? Well, well sh- should we investigate? Should we see? Well, he says, you, you know that that's just a piece of stone, that idol is, right? Or a piece of wood. That, the incantation doesn't do anything. It doesn't change the molecular structure of that meat. It's just a piece of meat, right? So if you have a piece of meat, just eat the meat. Like, you can, you can do that. You have knowledge about that. But also that knowledge should inform your conscience as well. And we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks when we get to this text here. But look at verse 7, because he says in verse 7, however... Not all possess this knowledge. And so, in other words, some people, it's not just speaking about your mind, it's also your conscience. Some people, they really had a hard time with eating that meat. They, they, for them, they tied it so much to the, sacrificials, um, the, the, the sacrifices of those idols that they just really couldn't get over that. So the point is, is that this is speaking about about knowledge that is scripturally based, as spiritually based, but also it deals with one's conscience. So go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And my point of just bringing this up is that this church was filled with grace. They had a lot of knowledge. They knew the scriptures. They, their consciences were pretty well informed. They had the word of God. And why was that? Well, it wasn't because they are a bunch of smart people. It wasn't because they were well-versed in Greek philosophy or just they had the brightest and the best in this church. You can see actually in verse 26, he says that's the exact opposite. Like He says, not many of you are wise. Not many of you are important people. Actually, God chose the foolish things of this world. He chose the weak things of this world for his glory. So why did they have the word of God preached in the church in a congregation well-informed. Why was their church that way? And he's saying, listen, it's because of God's grace. So when I think of your church, I think of God's grace, and I think that he's equipped you by his grace with his word and with the knowledge of him. This past week, I was following the March for Life in Washington, D.C., and I saw a guy that got up and spoke. His name was Kurt Cameron. And, And some of you know who he is. I've asked sometimes younger people if you know who he is, and they don't know who he is, but he was a child star in the 1980s on a popular show called Growing Pains, and as I was listening to him, I was reminded about his testimony. As a teenager, he was a rich, bratty TV star by his own admission, and he was partying it up, living life for himself, but then there was this girl he met. It usually starts that way, right? And uh, she went to church, and so her dad invited him to come to church. And so he sat in the back, and this was the first time that he had ever sat in a church before. So think about this. Uh, think about a Hollywood star, you know, a rich Hollywood star. He could have anything he wanted. He's coming to a service like ours, and he's listening to preaching. And he says, he listened to the preaching of God's word. This is his testimony. He says, I went to church with them, that's this girl and her dad, I heard the gospel for the first time. This man stood up front and he opened a Bible, which I thought was just a big, thick, dusty book full of rules. But the man at the front said, this is the word of God. And during the preaching, he says, I'm sitting at the back of this church feeling two things. One, very guilty because I knew I had sinned against God. And two, I felt this incredible sense of hope. My heart was swelling with hope that this story of an amazing God who sees my sinful heart would be compassionate enough to actually take my punishment for me, forgive me, and welcome me into his family. And what's amazing is he heard the gospel through preaching and God awakened his soul and later on he came to trust in Jesus Christ. 
that was a result of the grace that God had given that church of preaching, of the word of God. Look at verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1.18. It's the word, the logos of the cross. At the very end, it says, it is the power of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword of joints and of marrow in discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's the word of God that is powerful in a church. The richest part of a church, I truly believe this, the richest part of the, of the church is the proclamation of the word of God. In this time, in these times, in other settings, it's when we take God's word and we say, this is what God says, as the old King James says, thus says saith the Lord. I can't even say it right. Thus saith the Lord. Been a long time since I spoke King James. And I would encourage you, if you're looking for a church, this is the number one priority. It's the preaching of God's word. That's where the Holy Spirit's power is. And, and let me just say this. It's, it's not in all the, the fixings, right? It's not in all the side things. You know, it's not in the mood. Like, oh, I want a church that's going to Put me in the mood for worship. It's not bad to have different things that help us, you know, maybe think about the Lord and focus on his word. But th that's not where the power is. It's not in all the extras, like, you know, having the Starbucks coffee. Our coffee's pretty good, actually. But it's not in the big choir or the cool band. Although I, I like ensembles and Jorge, you're pretty cool. But God's grace, God's grace comes through the preaching and teaching of God's word. And a church that has expositional preaching is one of the richest churches in town. And it's not enough for us just to hear the word. It must inform our minds and our consciences. And so he says in verse 4, look at verse 4. I give thanks, and he says it's because of the grace of God was given, verse 5, it enriched you in him in all speech and all knowledge, verse 6, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift. That word confirmed in verse 6 is another aorist passive. So again, it keeps going back to the, that moment of their conversion. And in verse Six, he says, the testimony of Christ, that is the gospel, that is what, what we know about Christ, what he's done for us. The gospel came to them through the preaching of Paul, and then God confirmed, or you could say it this way, he guaranteed the truth of the message by enriching them with grace. And then look at verse seven. He says, this grace that they received enriched them. They became so rich with God's grace, verse 7, that you are not lacking in any gift. Now, this word gift is an interesting word. It's actually the singular form of the word grace. So this is speaking of God's spiritual gifts that he gives our church. So God has his manifold riches of grace, and he individually and specifically graces you, gives you grace. Think about First Peter here we go. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, when did you get that gift? When did God give you that grace, that, that special grace that equips you? Well, that was at your conversion. As each has received a gift, use it. In other words, use that grace to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied or manifold grace. The purpose of God's grace given to you is for what? It's to serve his church, which means this, which, which means if you're not serving the church, you're not using the grace God has given to you. It's like a hoarder who, who gets and gets and collects and collects. You ever watch those TV shows? And their house is, is piled high. You can't even walk down the, the hallway and into the rooms. Like it mounds up and they never distribute it out. 
It's like the kid who has the, the five-gallon bucket of candy, you know, and he goes out in October and goes door to door and he collects all this candy and comes back and there's his little sister. She didn't get to go out and he says, nope, all the candy is for me. A person that has God's grace and doesn't distribute God's grace, doesn't use the grace of God to serve people, you're like a hoarder. You're like that selfish little kid. You're not using the grace of God. You're not serving with God's grace. So the question is, I think for all of us, we have to ask ourselves is, are we using the grace of God? God has abundantly provided for us with grace. And he's given us everything we need. So the first reason to thank God for his church is because of his provision. Christ's grace has given us everything we need. And then number two, we can thank God because of God's promise to the church. This is Christ's call guarantees our final innocence. Christ's calling guarantees our final innocence innocence. Look at verse 7. He says in verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he goes from their conversion, says you received grace, you were gifted at conversion. Then he says you're now eagerly waiting. So this is talking about their life now. And then he's saying you're waiting for what? The end of verse 7. For the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then when is that? Well, look in verse 8. He says that it's on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. This speaks of that final day when Christ will come back. Revelation 19 gives a wonderful picture of this day. This is the apocalypse. This is the revelation of Christ. This is his second coming. On that day, Revelation 19 describes the sky opening up and Christ Jesus appearing. He comes down, he is revealed from heaven, comes down to judge and make war upon sinners. He will be called the word of God, Revelation 19 says. The word of God today has the power to save you from sin. At that time, the word of God, Jesus Christ, he will come and the word of God will actually condemn you condemn those without Christ. He will condemn sinners. This is a day of judgment. This is a day when all liars and thieves and disobedient and gossips and coveters will be damned to hell. This is a very sobering day. This is the day when the righteousness and holiness of God is impressed upon the hearts of sinners and the fury of the wrath of God Almighty will be poured out and condemn sinners to hell. Those without Christ will find themselves in a Christless eternity. And now, now he might tolerate your sin now he might put up with your rejection. But friend, if you're without Christ on that day, there'll be no excuses. There'll be no second chances. That will be the final day. But then after that day, Christ will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will be the loving ruler and rule his people. In fact, verse seven says that we eagerly wait that day. We wait that day. The idea is we, we desire that day to come. And it's not because of the judgment. It's, becomes what, it's because of what happens after judgment. We get to be with Christ forever and he makes all things new. And that's the day of our final salvation. And you're with, if you're without Christ, you should fear that day. But if you're in Christ, then that day should give you hope. But you might think, Pastor Ben, okay, I'm, I've turned from my sin. I've trusted Jesus. and I, He's my Lord and Savior. I'm trusting that. But, oh, man, I still mess up. I mean, I, I think about that day, and I think, well, maybe, maybe when he comes back, actually, he's going to throw me in hell. 
You ever think that? Maybe you think, Pastor Ben, I, I wasn't very kind to my family this past week. I feel really bad about that. Or, I disobeyed my parents. I've been disobeying my parents a lot. I've, I coveted, Lord. I, I've, I've lusted. Like, maybe you, you feel that, and your, your question you're asking yourself is, how do I know, how do I know on that last day when he's revealed in holiness and righteousness and his wrath comes out upon sin that I'm not going to be dropped right into hell? How do I know that? Well, the question is, what does the scripture say? And let me just say, first of all, if you have those thoughts, if you wonder that, that's actually very, very good. You should ask yourself those questions. Right? If you have a true understanding of the holiness of God, then you should ask yourself, why wouldn't you just drop me into hell, God? But the answer is found in the scripture. In other words, the hope that you won't be sent to hell is found in verse 8 and 9. He says in verse 8, he says, who, that's God, will sustain you. He will confirm you. He will keep you. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse nine, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The verb sustain in verse eight comes from the same root word found in verse six. So look at verse six, God confirms us there. So God confirmed their salvation was true at their conversion. So he confirmed them as a Christian at their conversion. And then verse eight, God will confirm them on that future day. So it's guaranteed. The idea is it's guaranteed. This is a legal term to say that your salvation is guaranteed. And what is the guarantee? Look at verse eight. What's the guarantee? God will guarantee he will confirm you to the end, what? Guiltless, blameless. On that last day, Christ, like a conquering king, will come. He will judge the world. All flesh will stand before him. All who have sinned, all who have fallen short, all who have rebelled will fall before him. But he guarantees, listen to this, he guarantees that those who are in Christ will be found blameless, guiltless, without fault, innocent, acquitted. If you are in Christ, when the righteous Christ appears, he will look at you, he'll point at you, and he'll say, without blame, you're not guilty. Is that true? Well, we know we've sinned against God, but it's true because Jesus applied his work to our life. God the Father applied the work of Jesus to our life. And why can he say that? Why can he say that we are guiltless? Look at verse nine. He says, because, verse nine, you are in the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you notice how so many times he keeps saying, in Jesus Christ, in him, in the fellowship of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The reason you are without blame is because Jesus took the blame for you. And at your conversion, God the Father applied the work of Jesus to your life. And therefore, for eternity, you are in Christ. And still, we might think to ourselves, well, but how do I know that? Right? Do you, have, you ever have people that talk to you about this? You ever feel that way? It's like, well, how do I know? Like, you say that. No, this says, how do I know? Well, he actually says the answer to that in verse number nine. Let's start in verse eight, and let's just kind of work through this. What's that guarantee based on? Look at verse eight. Who, that's God, will sustain. So God guarantees you to the end, that is that day of Christ, guiltless. In verse nine, God is faithful by whom you were called. Now let's just think about verse nine. The word faithful is actually an adjective that describes God. There's actually no is in the original language. So it's a description of God. It's a, it's a, character trait of God, describes who God is, describes God as one who keeps his word. If God says it, you can trust it's going to happen. Like God never breaks his word. So if God says something, if he does something and he says it's going to continue on, trust God. But what, what also is the guarantee that, or what, what is the work that God guarantees I'm sorry, what is God's work that guarantees our final innocence? Look at verse nine. What is God's work 
that guarantees our final innocence. He says, God is faithful by whom you were called. Or you could say it this way. God will guarantee your innocence to the end because faithful God has called you. Now, you look at the word called or we're called. Take a guess. What tense do you think that's in? What do you think that's talking about? Past tense. It's aorist tense. It's something that happens to you. It's a passive. Again, what's this talking about? It's talking about your conversion. So he keeps going back and saying, remember what God gave you when you were converted. And what is it right here that God did for you when you were converted? He did what? He called you. Real quickly, let me just talk about this because this is very, very important. If you are struggling with assurance of your salvation, it's so important for you to understand what does it mean that God called you. So there are three calls related to salvation in the scripture. First, there's the, the divine call. Then there's the preacher's call. Then there's the sinner's call. In fact, let me just show these to you in this text. Go to verse one, chapter one, verse one. And see if you can guess which call is which. Verse one, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle. So this is a reference to Paul on the Damascus road, God speaking to him. So which call is this here? This is the divine call. called him to Christ. How about verse two? To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. So which call is this? This is the divine call. God, through Christ, called those ones out, that church out, to be his holy ones. And then he says, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. So which call is this? Well, this is the sinner's call to be saved. They cried out to trust in the Lord as their Lord and Savior. And then look at verse 23. Verse 23, chapter one, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. Now it doesn't say the word call in here, but, but which call is this? What is happening here in this first part of this verse. We preach Christ crucified. This is the preacher's call. This is the call to invite all to come to Christ, that whoever comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. So this is the, the preacher's call. He's calling people to trust in Christ. And then notice he goes on, he says, but we preach Christ a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So there's some people that are going to hear the, the preachers call and they're going to say, ha, foolishness, or, oh, we need more than that. It's not that simple. But then he says in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So which call is this in verse 24? This is the divine call. This is the same divine call we find in verse number nine. This is the divine call of God to save sinners. So the preacher calls sinners to believe the gospel. Some people will reject, but those who are divinely called will themselves call upon the Lord. That's what that text is teaching right there. So go back to verse nine and think about the divine call. God divinely called them. This was God awakening their soul to life. It's the work of God to convict them of sin, to convince them of Christ. This is like Jesus when he called Lazarus out. Remember, Lazarus was dead. His body was rotting. And Jesus said, what? Come forth. And his body came to life. That's the divine call right there. So in Acts, if you were to go back to Acts and read about this account, you can see Paul preached. He, he was the preacher who called them to come to Christ. Turn from your way. Stop following your own ideas and turn to Jesus and trust in him. And God divinely worked. He called souls to life. And because of God's divine call, many turned and called upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we go back to verses eight and nine, what guarantees that I will not be thrown into hell on that last day? In other words, what will keep me? What will sustain me to the end? Or I should say, who will? It's faithful God. 
And the basis for that guarantee is what he did at your conversion. He was the one who called you out of darkness into the fellowship of his son. In other words, it was a work that he did. The reason why that you will stand before Christ as faultless is because on the day of your conversion, he was the one who saved you. You didn't save yourself. You did nothing to save yourself. In fact, with everything you did and what I did, we deserve to go to hell. But he was the one who called us. He was the one who justified us. He was the one who sanctified us. He was the one who forgave us. And because God called you at conversion, you are guaranteed to stand as a saint on that last day. And listen, nothing, nothing will be put to your charge. Now, if you know your sin, and if you know the holy God, then that seems unbelievable to you. How in the world will God not judge me for his sin? Well, it's because Jesus took my place. And we believe that's true. And this is a promise for his church. What's his promise to us? Christ's calling guarantees our final innocence. And I want to emphasize something as we end this, that this is to Christ's church. He's thanking God for Christ's church and what God has provided for his church. I think this is important to note that he's talking about a specific group of people, a local church. We individualize the gospel, and we should. We personally have to turn to Christ and trust him as our Lord and Savior. But those who are in Christ must be connected, must be in fellowship with, must be members of a local church. And Paul here connects the spiritual blessings of Christ to those in the local church. And and I say that because I think it's important for us to keep that idea in context. He's praying for these people and the the blessings that God has given to these people, this church. And so if you're in here and you're not a member of a church, let me invite you to either join with us or join with another church, but please attach yourself to the body of Christ. Become a part of a local church. Christ's provision and his promises are poured out upon his church. And let's conclude thinking about our two reasons of why we should Thank God for our church. If you're in here without Christ, the most important thing for you this morning is to turn to him, to turn from your way and to call upon him as your savior. And as we conclude, church, I think it's good for us to think about how do we think about our church? Are we thankful for our church? And and not just for the things we like. I like this part of our church, but I'm thankful for those people. And I'm thankful for them because of what Christ has done for all of us. Christ has given us the gift, the grace of his word, the grace of being able to know him, to have that knowledge of him, grace to be able to serve one another. And also, he's given us his promise. It could be that you're in here and you're struggling Maybe you're struggling with assurance of your salvation. Maybe you're struggling with just doubt. And and it could be because you have lingering sin in your life and you're not dealing with it. You're not fighting it. You're giving into it. You're not getting help. And so if that's the case, we would love to sit down with you, take God's word and help you know how you can have victory, how you can have grace that helps you to overcome. But maybe you're just overwhelmed just because you're encountering God on a daily basis. And my encouragement to you would be to go to his word, look at what he's done for you, and trust that God is faithful. He called, he justified, he sanctified. And brothers and sisters in Christ, he is faithful to glorify. And we look forward to that last day. Let's pray.